I would dare say if we're not uplifted by that song service this morning, there's something wrong with us. The song of invitation will be number 856. Number 856. You know, David talked about it being perilous times, and that is true. A lot of things going on in this country. But as that song says, we don't stand alone. And no matter what happens here on this earth, the things will happen here, but God is still on his throne. And that's something that I have to tell myself over and over a lot of times is it doesn't matter what happens here, God is still on his throne. This morning, I'm going to go back to what I usually do. I've, I've spoke the last few lessons I've done, more in Old, uh, New Testament type studies, more, I don't know if you want to say gospel type, living, gospel living, biblical living, whatever. And I guess it's all the same, but I, my, my first love has always been the Old Testament. And we're going to go back there today. Daniel chapter 5 is where we're going to be taking our study from this morning. And I've entitled the lesson, Many, Many Tickle, You Farson. Now, before anybody thinks I'm starting to speak in tongues and fixing to jump pews, that's, a, that's the gist of that chapter there in, in Daniel chapter 5. It's the story of Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible says he re re recalls him as a son, and that's not uncommon in a lineage of kings. He was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, but he was a grandson, and he was very likely at this point in time, in about 538, B.C. in co-regents with his father at that time. So it does fit for him to be called his son. But just keep that in mind. It's his grandson who Belshazzar is. And as the story takes place, if you're familiar with Daniel chapter 5, it opens up. It says, Belshazzar gave a feast. And he has this feast, and there's a thousand, over a thousand people there. And he has his wives, and he has his concubines, and he has all of the rulers of the kingdom there in his presence. And they're having this big party and the wine is there and the food is there and they're having a great time. And then Belshazzar has this idea. He remembers that when Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem that he took all the furnishings out of the temple and they were in the storehouse. So here sets the, the furnishings of God's temple in the Babylonian Empire at, since Jerusalem was taken captive. And he has them. So he has the bright idea that he's going to call them forth from the treasury and he brings them to this party. And what he begins to do, he begins to take and as he is feasting and he, as he is praising the gods, of the, as the Bible says, of gold and silver and stone and precious metals, as he's praising to those gods, he takes the furnishings of God's temple and he pours wine into those. And then he begins to make offerings and toasts and speeches to his gods. And we all know where this is going, don't we? God's not pleased with that because that was not the intention that he had for those furnishings. And during the middle of all this, they're having this big party, they're having this good time, and everybody looks up and on the wall over there, you see this, these fingers appear. And they write these words, Meeny, meeny, tickle, you farson. Now, you can imagine what that would do to the merriment of any party. I was recently at a birthday party, and we were having a great time. There was a bunch of people from the church there that it had been a while since we had associated together, probably in that kind of setting. And we were reminiscing about how we did things when we were young and how fun it was and how 
how much we enjoyed that and we needed to get back to doing that and what happened and all the things that go along with that and we're having a good time and we're eating and you know I was preparing for this lesson at that time and I thought what if we're sitting there and we're having this good time and all of a sudden these fingers appear and they write these strange words on the wall all the merriment would cease wouldn't it all the drunkenness that they were were having ceased their thoughts of everything else ceased. To those words on the wall, meeny, meeny, tickle, you farson. And to top all that off, they didn't know what it meant. But they did know that they saw fingers and those things written. It says Belshazzar was so afraid, it said his knees smote one against another. This is the man that is untouchable. He's the ruler of Babylon. He is the, the world's foremost empire. Nothing can touch him. And the mightiest army. And his knees smote together because he was so afraid. That's the kind of sight that he saw. And it worried him. So he puts out a proclamation as soon as that's over. He says, anybody of my astrologers or the, Chal or the Chaldeans or the astrologers or the, the soothsayers at the time, if you can tell me what that says, you'll be number three in the kingdom. And not only will you be number three, you'll be rich. He said, I'm going to put gold around your neck and I'm going to put robes on your back. Just tell me what it means. And of course, nobody could because it was a message from God. Not the gods of silver, not the gods of stone, but the true God, Jehovah, had sent that message. And luckily, his grandmother remembered. There was a man by the name of Daniel that was in the kingdom of the captives of Judah, out of Israel. She said, he has the spirit. And what really tickles me about this, she says, he has the spirit of the holy gods, plural, little g. And so he calls Daniel forth. And he says, Daniel, tell me what these words mean. I've got to know. And he said, if you will, I'll make you number three in the kingdom. And I'll make you rich. And I'll give you the raiment. And Daniel said, you can keep all that stuff to yourself. But he said, I'll tell you what it means. And, Dan and God revealed unto Daniel the saying. But before he tells him what, he, what it says, he begins to give a history lesson to Belshazzar. He said, he said, Belshazzar, it wasn't very long ago that your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, learned this lesson that you're about to learn. Because he was told, if you'll recall in Daniel chapter 4, if you're familiar with the story, about 38 years before this very moment, Nebuchadnezzar was told in a dream that he would lose his kingdom and he would be made into a beast. And said, you'll run wild with the animals for seven years. And Nebuchadnezzar heard that dream and he forgot that dream. And one day he was walking in Babylon and he said, Look at what I've done. Look at all the wonderful things that I have built. Look at the wonderful things. And God said, You didn't listen to me. He said, I told you to remember where it came from. And he said, Because of this, your heart's going to be turned to a beast. And he ran for seven years in the wild and his hair grew long and his nails grew long and he looked like a wild animal and he was crazy for seven years and he ate grass like an animal and at the end of those seven years he was restored because he realized that, that, that who was on the throne and who was in control and he was restored and Daniel relates that story to Belshazzar 
And he tells him, you didn't learn. And that's why those fingers came. And he says, now I'm going to tell you what it means. He says, many, the first word there, is translated numbered. So we have numbered, numbered, with many, many. Tikal means you have been weighed and found wanting. And euphorson means divided. So he just got a very, very sobering message from God. First of all, he said, Belshazzar, your life is numbered. That's the first one. That's the first meaning. The second one, he said, the days of your kingdom are numbered. And he said, third, you've been weighed in the balance and you've been found wanting. That was Tekel. Euphorson means that it's all going to be taken away. It's going to be divided. And as the story goes, the interpretation wasn't even cold from Daniel's lips before Darius or Darius the Mede, however you say it or choose to say it, overthrew Babylon. It ceased to be an empire, and Darius died that night. See, his idolatry started the problem. There in verse 4, his self-importance and failure to learn from the past showed up in Daniel 5, verses 18 through 24, when he didn't remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Judgment was passed on him in Daniel chapter 5 with the writing on the wall. In verse, verse 5, yes. Then his sentence was passed in Daniel 5, 25 through 28, the writing. And then his punishment was his kingdom was taken away from him. And so was his life. I love the Old Testament. Because I look back and I see the stories like this and they intrigue me. And I see that because I, 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 I love history. And you know, oftentimes I find myself and I look at those stories. And I say, why couldn't he learn? This was 38 years. I'm 44, soon to be 45. I can remember back... 15, 20 years. It's not hard to remember back. Some of you can remember back further than that. 38 years. And I think to myself, what is wrong with this guy? Could he not see the miracles that happened? Could he not see what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and how when he noticed, when he came back to God, that he was raised again? A lot of times I find myself being judgmental. But then I began to think about my life. And how I do the exact same thing. How many times have we stood here and talked about the Jews and said, they crossed the river or the, the Red Sea and it parted. How could they not know? And not a few days later, they were complaining. God, we should have just died over there because you let us out here to die. And we're critical about that. And I think that's one of the things that makes me love the Old Testament so much is because when we look back, most of the time, we can see ourselves. If we'll really be honest, we'll see ourselves. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to take that example that we talked about, and I want to look at it and, and pull some things out that I think that we can use. And I appreciate the prayer on my behalf from David. It's my prayer this morning that hopefully my observations will help you out because I feel like they've helped me. You know, as we look at this, we can see what God was capable of then. 
And God is the same God yesterday as he is today. He's capable of the very same things. But the sad thing is we as humans are capable of the exact same thing also, aren't we? We can be just like Belshazzar or you, whoever you're studying about. We can be just like them. So I ask you this morning, as we talked about the idolatry of Belshazzar, and we tend to think, well, we're in America. This is a Christian nation. We're not in a land of idols. We have... Some of us that have been to India, we've seen the massive temples. We've seen the massive idols. We've seen people that didn't have money for food buying food to put in front of an idol when they couldn't put food in front of their children's face. And we say, and even our brethren from India talk a lot of times, India, the land of idols. So I ask you this morning, what are our idols? And you say, well, we live in a Christian nation. We don't have idols. Brothers and sisters, I dare say we live in the most idolatrous country in the world. Because we not only have millions, I think we have multiple, multiple millions of idols. And I tell you that because there's any number of things that we as the American people choose over God every day. And one of them, I would dare say, is the thing that's in our pockets right now that we ask everybody to silence at the beginning of church, and it's that blooming cell phone. And I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching at me. How many times have you been 30 miles down the road and went, well, I've got to turn around and go home. Got to get my cell phone. We can't live without it. Sports, entertainment, we're an entertainment-mad country. We, we talk and can talk stats on people that we don't know personally for 15, 20 years back if we're interested in it, can't we? What do we put above God? And that's anything. Anything can be an idol that we put in the place of God or that we steal time away from God and put that time into that thing or that device. Turn over to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 34. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 34. Take therefore no thought for tomorrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. No, that's not what I'm looking for. Uh, it's the one before that. Excuse me, verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's what I was looking for. You know, he's talking there about worrying in the verses before about clothing and food and monetary things and getting things taken care of. But you know, what was Jesus in his own words response? He said, seek God first and everything else will be put into context. And I bring that verse up and, I, you know, you may be thinking, what does that really have to do with idolatry or what we're putting in our lives? But let me ask you something. Who can tell you better how to build a relationship with your wife than God? Not some fallible man that has his opinions, that probably has three or four failed marriages under his belt that's in the world that's never known God or God. Who's, who's more qualified? God is the man that set up the institution. Seek him first. If we want to know how to have peace in our lives, don't go ask Sigmund Freud. Turn to the Bible. 
because he's the one that can tell us. Seek him first. And that's what he's telling us. And that's what's so crazy about humans, isn't it? We are so selfish that we want to turn to ourselves or we want to turn to somebody else, something to put there instead of God. When it's so simple to turn to this book right here. It'll tell us what we need and how we need to do it. And it'll even tell us the outcome if we'll just follow it. Seek him first. That's not our way. We want to put everything else above God. And when we do, our lives fall apart. We've all been there, haven't we? We go down the path, and, and, and maybe you haven't. I hope you haven't. But I know in my life, my walk has been like this. Sometimes really, and then this, and then, you know, we've all been there. Hopefully not, but... The fact is, when we're at that low point, we're as far away from God, right? And what's wrong in our lives? It's a wreck. He's not there because we're walking away from him. And what happens when we come back and we get on that road? Guess what? Everything smooths out, doesn't it? That doesn't mean we don't have trouble, but guess what? Our mind is right, our soul is right, our spirit is right, and things are great, and we can face it. But we always want to put something else in his place because there's always something better. That's human nature, evidently. We need to seek him. John chapter 4, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one cometh unto the Father but by me. But we as humans fight that every day. We'd rather go any other path, seems like. As we look around in our society, any other path but Christianity is the way to go. And what has this type of idolatry got in our nation? It's burning to the ground right now. Because people refuse to give up their idols and turn to God. And it'll do the exact same thing to us. If we refuse to put those idols out of our lives, it'll burn us to the ground too. In this life. Not to mention what will happen in the next one. You know, that goes so far as to say, even to people in our lives... If we're putting them above God, that's not what we need to do. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 38 says, He that who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now, that's a pretty hard one. I love my mother and I loved my father. And that'd be a tough one. But they're not worth putting in the place of God. And what the Bible says, if you have to do that and you're put in that situation, you're given a hundred times more mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. See, there's no idol that can replace God, and we don't need to do that, whether it be people or things or anything else. Which leads me to the next point. What about ourselves? Now, there's another big one that we try to put in place of God, isn't it? That's really what's wrong with this society that we're facing here today. That's what's wrong with humanity in general is humanism. I know I'll probably speak about humanism a lot or mention it a lot, but I think that's the problem with this country. We want God out of everything. We took him out of our schools. We're trying to take him out of our law books. We're trying to take him out of everything that exists in this country and replace it with what? Me. I have made a mess of everything 
in my life that God was not in? What makes us think this is going to happen? Look around. But mankind has always placed himself above or tried to place himself above God in that selfishness. Just like Belshazzar had the bright idea to call in the true gods, brought his furnishings in and began to defile them. We're the exact same way. We lift ourselves up with pride in our humanism and we replace God with self, don't we? Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8 says, To be carnally minded is death. In other words, to be worldly is to die. And that's die one of two, or of two ways. You keep it up in this life and you live carnally, you're dead to God in this life, and it can kill you. Second of all, when you get to see God on the judgment day, you're going to be cast into everlasting darkness. So to be worldly-minded is death. And you know, that's something we as humans have to really watch because we're selfish. We're inherently selfish. I look to the things that I have trouble with in my, with me and Emily, and what's the root? She's selfish. No, not really. I'm selfish, and that's the problem. Because I interject in our marriage, in our lives, in our relationship, me, 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 what I want. And it don't work. And we all know that because we've all been there. It's the same way with God. When we're selfish, what do we begin to think? Well, I want this, so we start beginning to rationalize God's word into, well, I think God just wants me to be happy. Well, I don't, it really doesn't matter. I know that this commandment is this and technically it's that, but God really wants me to be happy. We hear that all the time. Or we hear the other line of, well, that's, that's really your interpretation. Or you hear, well, the Bible's an old document and it was written, you know, thousands of years ago and it's time to move on. It, it's not how it works, people. And you know, the sad thing is, is we see this culture that we're living in of selfishness and humanism as it begins to grow. That's going to enter the church. And that's something we're going to have to watch for. Because we already see it in, in worldly congregations. It's not about what I can do for the church or what I can do for God. It's all about what can the church do for me? Well, I just can't go to church there because I just don't feel lifted up. I just don't feel spiritually engaged. Guess what? It don't matter about you because you're sitting in that pew this morning to worship God Jehovah, not make yourself feel better in the standpoint of entertained. You're here to be lifted up spiritually and to worship your creator. And here in a minute, when I get through talking, you're going to stand here for the most important part of this. And you're going to remember Christ as he died on the cross and how unworthy that you are and I am to receive that sacrifice. To be carnally minded is death. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hold to the one and despise the other. But you cannot serve God and mammon, or you cannot serve God and man. You cannot go serve God and the world. 
But that's exactly what we try to do, isn't it? We come here on Sunday morning and we say, oh, you praise the Lord, this is great, this is good. And then we go out. And we begin to put ourselves forward and we start trying to serve ourselves or we try to serve the world. And we talk about that. We talk about Sunday morning Christians and as we live the rest of the week the way we want to. It don't work that way. To be carnally minded is death. No man can serve two masters. So we're going to love God or we're going to hate him. That's a choice we got. There's no in-between. You know, that's what he said in, in Reve, I believe it's in Revelations. He said, I would that you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. He said, I'd rather you hate me, or I'd rather you be on fire for me, but if you're in the middle, you make me sick. And you know, as I look at my life, I think a lot of times, how many times am I that guy? Am I the, am I the lukewarm guy? And the answer is yes. And it makes God sick. And it should make us sick. And we need to realize that God is on his throne. And he better be on the throne in our life. We don't need to put ourselves above him. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. And this they did, talking about the church in Macedonia. This they did, not as we hope, but first, first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. You know, that's a very obscure verse. It's not groundbreaking. It's not really earth-shattering as far as doctrinal issues or anything. But you know what it said? The Macedonians gave themselves to God first. Are we giving ourselves to God first? Are we giving ourselves to ourselves first? And making our thoughts and our wants and our desires number one in our life instead of God's. Thirdly of all, if we're going to label this don't be like Belshazzar, do we learn from the past? You know, it's very obvious since I love the Old Testament. I am, a, I would say, a, a student of history. I like history to I like things to be able to make a line, a timeline. I like to know roughly when Belshazzar reigned. I like to know roughly when Adam and Eve were in the garden. And that sets a timeline in my mind. And I like history. I love reading about the ancient empires. I love reading about ancient warfare and the tactics and the things like that. But I love the stories in the Old Testament because I feel like they can teach us. You know, Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 said, The law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And I challenge you to read in the Old Testament. And when you do, look for the ways that it either points to the church or it points to Christ. Or it points to some facet of what's going to be brought into the new law or brought over into the new law. Nearly every story that you read, you can see Christ or you can see God or you can see the plan that's coming in the future. And that's the beauty of the Bible. The fact that it, out through all the amount of time that it was written and through all the authors that it was written, that it came together like this. 
And despite what they say outside these doors, that this book is racked with thousands upon thousands of errors, before you go down that road and get, in that, get involved in that ignorance, this book has never been disproved. And the so-called mistakes that they talk about, spelling mistakes, punctuation mistakes, that's what it is. There's no text that's changed it. Because if they could find it, don't you know they'd be touting it already? We need to learn from the past. It's our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 54 is a beautiful story about a man by the name of Stephen. And he recounted the very fact that the Jews that he was standing in front of that had killed Christ, he recounts their history to them because they had forgotten it. And he stands there, if you'll recall the story of Stephen, he stands there and he called him, he said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, you do always persecute the prophets. These are the same people that were standing there going, if we had only been alive in the time of Elijah, or we'd only been alive in the times of Jeremiah, we hadn't have done those things. And Stephen looked him right in the eye and he said, you say those things, but you're the guys that did it. Their sepulchers are with us. Your forefathers did it and you killed the Son of God. You didn't learn from the past. You didn't look to the past. You didn't learn from your mistakes. You killed the Son of God. You know what they did? So they ran on him and they gnashed on him with their teeth and they stoned him. They killed him because he reminded them of their past. They didn't want to look back. They didn't want to remember. I ask you this morning, do we learn from the past? Now, I'm not here this morning to tell you that we need to drag up our old sins and our own problems and feel guilty for it. That's not what I'm saying, so don't take that from, from what I'm about to say. But the fact is, have we learned from our mistakes? Me in my life, do I look back and go, well, that time that I did that, this caused this, it caused me to fall away, it caused my heart to be hardened, and it led me further from Christ. Do we remember that? Or do we just keep committing the same thing over and over and go, well, I don't understand why my life's in a mess? Isn't that the very definition of stupidity, doing the exact same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result? Do we learn from our past? Do we take the mistakes that we've made and grow from those? Isn't that really what true repentance is? We take those mistakes, we learn from those mistakes, we feel horrible for those mistakes, and we change our lives, and we move forward. That's why it's important to learn from the past. I don't remember who made the quote, but it said, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. If we forget the struggles that we've had in our lives and we flush our minds of that, not punish ourselves for that, mind you, but if we flush our minds of that, we're just starting over with a blank slate every morning going, I don't know which way to go because I don't remember anything. The point is we have to learn. We have to grow. Belshazzar could have been the greatest king ever if he just would have looked back and kept following Nebuchadnezzar in his later days and grown and become a great follower of God. But he didn't do that. 
He went back to his idolatries. Not 38 years after Nebuchadnezzar had made some of the most uh, positive statements towards God, Jehovah, that he would be the greatest and anybody that spoke against him, they would die and he would, you know, they would bear the consequences. Just a few years later, his grandson was toasting the gods of silver and brass and stone with the furnishings from the temple. He didn't learn from the past. So I ask you this morning, I ask us to do a little bit of self-evaluation. I ask the question, what if we were put on trial right now? What if I was put on trial right now? What would the answer or what would the verdict be? Would it be everything's good? Or would we see the fingers right on the wall, meeny, meeny, tickle, you farson? And you know, I think about that, and that's a pretty scary thought. James chapter 1, verses 23. James chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. For if any be a hater of the world, or excuse me, <laughs> for if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in all his deeds." You know, James is telling us, you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and you comb your hair. You see if you've got a pimple on your face. You see if, you've, if you're, in my case, as I get older, if all the hair's coming out of your ears. If you're, you know, all those things, we look at that, and then we fix those things. We comb our hair, we shave our face, and we go out and we present, make ourselves presentable to go out into the world. You know, that's what he says the Bible is. He said, pull the Bible up to your soul. Let the Bible of, or let the word of God be a mirror to show you what your soul looks like. I'm here to tell you this morning, your Christian walk will fail without self-evaluation. Our lives will be ruined without God's word for us to judge our actions and our standards by we have to self-evaluate. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, it says, Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. I asked myself this morning, am I in the faith? I ask you this morning to examine yourself and ask that same question, are you in the faith? And if not, we need to get to looking into this mirror right here because it'll point out all the blemishes that we have in our life. And it'll tell us how to correct them. What will our punishment be? Matthew chapter 25 talks about the, the parables of the talents. The guy, Jesus tells the parable about going into the far country and the one guy got five and the other got two or three and the other one got one. The guy that got five come back and he had ten. Everybody doubled. And then the last guy said, I was scared and I went and hid it. Here's your talent back. That's the story. We're going to be that guy, number one. He said, 
thou good and faithful servant. Good job. Enter in to the rest that I've prepared. Where are we, that one talent guy? He said, cast him out. I don't want him to have any part or lot with me because he's not mine. If we were judged today, would, our, would we be punished or would we be rewarded? You know, I don't want to stand before God and hear the metaphorical words, many, many tickle you farson, that my life is numbered, that I've been found wanting, and I'll be cast into everlasting darkness. And I don't want that for you either. That's all I have this morning. Like I said, I hope that something I've said has been, can, we can say we've been edified and hopefully it'll help us in our days to come, in the week to come, make us stronger. If there's anybody here who has not obeyed the gospel, today is the day. It's the best day because we're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised to get out those doors back there before our life has ended. Don't wait. We're waiting, willing to help you. If there's anybody here who feels they've lost their way, maybe they feel that in their self-reflection that they need some changes, we encourage you to get that change today. If you need the prayers of the church, we'd be happy to do that. It's a loving congregation. No judgment, just love and help. If there's one of either class, come as we stand and sing the song of invitation.